Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And in this episode, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is all of the mom characters in Supergirl and how some of them have specifically shaped and influenced several of our main female characters throughout the series. And some interesting context for how I perceive mothers and their importance in Supergirl is that Superman is very much about fathers and sons. It's about Clark and Jonathan and Jor-El. And it's about how they are people that Clark, Superman, looks up to. And those relationships have formed him. And to then come and watch Supergirl and see that that's the case for Kara, but with her mother and her mother figures, it was just really interesting and different. In Supergirl, (laughs) there aren't many fathers. Well, there are a number of them, but... (laughs) Yeah, they're just not a huge presence in the storyline. They don't drive it as much. But the one notable exception is Jean, mm-hmm. Space Dad, who sort of inherited the line from Superman, uh, which is the son becomes the father, the father, the son. And that had to do with his relationship with Marin. And that was the only real notable father-son storyline that we've seen in Supergirl. So it's present there, and it kind of lives on the spirit of Superman in that form. But this is really a story about mothers and daughters and trying to be a hero. And it's interesting for me because it puts mothers in a position to be role models for heroism. See, now that's a complete contrast to why I found it so interesting and also how I came to watch Supergirl in the first place. I actually, when the show came out, was not interested in watching it at first. Blasphemy. (laughs) A little bit. I actually didn't start watching it until probably December of season one. So like a big chunk of the first half of the season was done by that point. And the reason I finally caved in was because several of my friends kept sharing different like clips of scenes and stuff. And my one friend kept messaging me over and over and was like, oh my God, you will really love this. You have to watch it. And the scene that finally sucked me in and convinced me that I should watch the show was the scene in Livewire between Alex and Eliza. And it was interesting because it hit such a personal nerve for me because I have been in a position where I actually basically raised another family's kid for half of her life now. But uh, it was interesting when I when I finally saw that scene. And then when I when I started watching the show, I, there were so many different things about all the relationship dynamics of parents and children that I related to being in the position that I'm in, where I'm very conscious that I'm like not the actual parent, but like I'm responsible for living up to all of the things that someone else wants for their child. And so it it was really cool to see a show that delved into adoptive and um, non-biological family dynamics like that, because it, it's not something you see on TV very often. And when you do, it's usually either very shallow or it's very stereotyped. And there's either like lots of arguing or everything's perfect. Mm-hmm. And what I really love about the way the show has handled that over all three seasons is that it, it's not any of those things. It's complex. It's rich. All of the characters, you know, they love each other very much, but they they fight with each other. They disagree. They have their ups and downs where they don't get along. And that's realistic. 
So with that said, one of the really neat things is you don't just see that combination of biological and adoptive bonds just within the Danvers family with Kara and Alex and Eliza. You also see it with the Luthers, Mm -hmm. who you had a revelation about. Yeah, to me, they're very much a foil for the Danvers family. Mm -hmm. And then the other big example that we got specifically in season one was of Alora and Astra as a biological bond that served as kind of a foil to Kara and Alex. Mm -hmm. And then in season three, we got the addition of the Arias family and we got three generations there as well. So we had, you know, Sam and Ruby and then also Sam's mother, Patricia. Mm -hmm. So we're going to focus on those three families specifically for the most part. Because if we try to cover everything, it'll be too much. Like season two touched on it as well because we also saw Rhea. In season three, there's also Wynne a mother-son dynamic. And just, you had a quote that you liked that seemed to sum up this dynamic that we're going to discuss today. Yes. Okay. So in season one, again, in the Livewire episode, Kat takes Kara out with her to talk about just like emotional frustrations and whatever. And in the process delivers probably one of my favorite quotes about mothers and daughters because it's so articulate for this woman who runs a media empire. And she's just like, mothers and daughters, it's hard. And that's it. But it's just, it's so funny because it's such a simple sentence and her delivery of it just encapsulates the reality of, you know, those very close parent-child dynamics. They are difficult. They're hard to navigate. They're complicated and they're ever-changing. The other thing I like about the show's take on moms in particular is that for the most part, they've all been genuinely multifaceted characters and they get to move the plot. They get their own kind of character development. They get arcs. They're not just like your stereotypical like hang out in the background and just like do mom things. Like they also get to be journalists and scientists and heads of companies and supervillains. Like mm-hmm. and they're important to the story and the plot. Exactly. And they're relevant to the story and they're also relevant to the characters and the emotional growth of everybody around them. And some of those character arcs that we'll see are very much shaped by the way that these mothers parented. Mm-hmm. And I came up with sort of a, a neat classification for the mom that we'll be discussing today that I call parenting objectives. So it's sort of like the goal that the mother has in mind when they're making decisions for the child um, and interacting with the child. Mm -hmm. And this is regardless of whether their child is still young or a grown person. Yes. They are contributing to the collective good, focus on individual happiness or satisfaction for the child, or focus on individual happiness or satisfaction for the parent. And you noted something that was interesting, which is that the parent that we see who encompasses the parenting objective of collective good is not from Earth. Yes, which is a really interesting contrast. And this is something I tend to notice a lot because one of my specialties academically is cross-cultural psychology mm-hmm. and then also sociocultural amp. So both of those are looking at kind of comparing and contrasting cultures. And um, one of the ways that you evaluate social groups is on whether they are collective, which is like focused on the good of the whole group, or if they're more individualistic, which is focusing specifically on like one person's desires, goals, dreams, etc. And the United States is 
very high on the individualistic scale. That's starting to shift a little bit because of changing immigration patterns and the values that have come in from some of these other cultures. But overall, it's still very strongly individualistic and very independent. But a culture like where Kara comes from, for example, you know, her family motto is stronger together, which is about as collective as you can get. Mm -hmm. So that's actually, it's really neat because as you're going to mention later, we see her kind of struggle to find the balance between those two things as she kind of integrates the way she was brought up. And then the other parents who their parenting objective focused on individual happiness for either the child or the parent were earthlings. Yes, earthlings. <laughs> so the three main parents that we're going to talk about are first, Alora. Her parenting objective is contributing to the collective good. And then Eliza, hers is individual happiness or satisfaction for the child. And then Lillian, whose focus is on individual happiness or satisfaction for the parent herself. Based on the parenting objectives, you have these very different sets of values that come to our main characters, Kara, Alex, Lena, and the mother-daughter dynamics kind of serve to set up these almost legacies in a sense of kind of the things that these moms want their their kids to absorb and then like continue pa either passing on to other people or, or putting out into the world. So the first daughter that we're going to talk about is Kara. And Kara is interesting in the way that she has been influenced by two different parenting objectives. Mm -hmm. The first, her sort of foundation, is with Alora, who is very much focused on the collective good. and Her parenting style is affected with that goal in mind. And then Kara later on is further raised by Eliza, who focused on the individual happiness of the child. Those two things intersect in a way that we learned over the course of season three equally make Kara the person and the hero that she is. So we're going to untangle further kind of how she got to that place and, you know, why she sometimes has difficulty either accepting one or the other or deciding like which one matters more than the other at any given moment. Mm -hmm. And this constant struggle that Kara has is very much intertwined with the fact that she is coming from another culture mm -hmm. and then immersed in this new one. So on Krypton, we know that Alora instilled certain ideals into Kara. One of the first lines that we hear Alora say in the series is, you'll journey to Earth to look after your baby cousin Kalel. Because of the Earth's yellow sun, you'll have great powers on this planet. You will do extraordinary things. Which is a big thing to dump on your 13-year-old child Yes, <laughs> in the middle of the night as you're about to launch them into space and the planet is exploding. As she's about to lose everything. And, and Carr really took that to heart. Yes, she did. We can see later on when she talks to Alex in season one, she's frustrated with the fact that Kal-El, her baby cousin, is the one who's saving her. Mm. She says, it wasn't supposed to be this way. This is the reason my mother and father sent me to Earth. And Alex replies with, they wanted you to live. And Kara says, no, it was more than that. Mm. And that's something she mentions repeatedly when people kind of try to reassure her, you know, that she's doing okay or that her parents want her to be happy. Right. And we know that it goes even as deep as her religion because in season three, we see a flashback of Kara praying with Alora, and the words that they're 
are saying are, Rao protect us so that we might protect others. So Kara very much thinks that her purpose is to protect others, that she survived to protect others. And we know that Alora, throughout her parenting, mentioned things like Kara having the heart of a hero, which is something Astra says in season one, mm. that she just said it all the time. So in essence, Alora has been emphasizing those values of, you know, doing good for others and being aware of other people's needs. So Kara's personal motto and values as a superhero are definitely derivative of both of the women who raised her. Yes, as we can see with the Rao protect us that we might protect others and, and what Allura told Kara to do when she sent her to Earth, she very much instilled this need to help in Kara. And we also know that the other part of her motto, um, hope, was something that Allura tried to teach her. In season three, she says, I had always taught you to hope. And we know that Allura tried to be compassionate in season one when she sent Astra to Fort Roz. She said, I will fight for your cause not through fear and manipulation, but through compassion and reason. So it was definitely one of Laura's goals to be compassionate. But it was also said in a moment where she wasn't very compassionate. No. One of the most interesting things that we learn throughout season one, and we see Kara kind of go through this, this very typical maturing process of kind of recognizing that her parents maybe weren't perfect people, is that every time we see memories of of Krypton's justice system, of choices that Alora made, Kara doesn't really agree with them a lot of the time. Kara, as an adult, mm-hmm. doesn't really agree with them. She's like, this isn't particularly compassionate. You know, if you were using compassion and reason, it obviously didn't work because you didn't make good on your promise. And that clearly is something that matters to Kara, keeping promises. Because mm-hmm. we see with the, um, I think it was a drug smuggler turned professor. Yes, in um, the episode with the master jailer. Yeah. We see that he got like a crazy sentence for a first time offense. As far as we know from context in season one, it seemed like all of the prisoners on Fort Roz got more or less the same sentence. And I feel like season three kind of reinforced that when we met Jinda Kalraz and found out she'd been in there since they made Fort Roz. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but season one was basically all of Alora's demons coming to haunt Kara in the form of prisoners. Mm. And in other ways, Kara was dealing with her disillusionment with her mother. I remember that storyline in which Jean was struggling with whether or not to kill a white Martian or to Mm. let himself die. Oh, in season one. Yes, in season one. She said, I ask myself every day why my mother didn't crawl into that pod with me. Now I know she felt guilty. She felt responsible for what happened on Krypton. So Kara thinks that Alora chose not to come and, and survive and to live with Kara and to raise her and protect her because she just felt guilty. Which is interesting to me in the context of knowing that Alora is a judge. So in a way, you can interpret that as her passing judgment on herself for her own failure there. Mm-hmm. Which is no wonder that we see Kara exhibiting the same kind of behavior in season three. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, Kara doesn't go quite that far down that route because unlike Allura, Kara has some uh, other counterweights yes. balancing out that tendency. Which brings us to Eliza, who, you're right, served as a great counterbalance to Allura. Because unlike Allura, her 
parenting objective is the child's happiness as opposed to the collective good. And we know that Kara has some issues with placing the collective good over her personal happiness and her personal relationships, especially in season three. Mm -hmm. When we see her in season three, particularly the front part of the season, she's imitating kind of that same tendency to to judge herself too harshly. And And she says it a lot. She's like, you know, I'm not human. I am better than these other emotions. I have to hold myself to this standard, blah, blah, blah. And she starts thawing on that a little bit. But the thing that's really striking when you, you know, you look at kind of Kara's interpretation of Alora is then when you get the Midvale episode and there's that scene with Kara and Eliza sitting out on the balcony kind of late at night and talking and you know Kara's first instinct is to apologize and be like oh you don't need to sit up with me and Eliza's like of course I do I'm your mother like that's what you do but she notices the same exact tendency she calls it out she says you know Kara you're so open-hearted and giving to everybody else but when you come to yourself you you punish yourself you judge yourself so harshly it's okay to feel sad or to you know to feel other feelings and to you know take care of yourself because that's what's ultimately going to make you stronger as a hero you can't be a hero to everybody else when you're not okay Mm -hmm. and despite that dark period in season three Kara is as mentally healthy as she is because eliza prioritized her feelings in that way Mm -hmm. and one of my um favorite scenes concerning eliza which doesn't actually have her in it. It's again a scene where Kara is talking to Jean. She describes the first time that she let Eliza hug her. And Kara says, she said that my parents would want me to be loved and that nothing would replace them, that they were part of who I am. It was the first time I ever really let her hug me. And that was the first time I didn't feel alone anymore. And it was that pushback against the collective mentality that was so imbued in Kara that gave Kara space to breathe and to have a normal childhood, mm. which is something that Eliza says to Kara in Midvale that it's giving her a chance at a normal childhood. Well, and it's funny, too, that you put it that way, that it was pushing Kara to breathe and stop feeling so collective, but then Kara specifically says that that's what made her not feel alone, mm-hmm. which means she started feeling a sense of belonging again. Yeah. So that's an interesting kind of contrast there. Right. But in that traumatic moment where Kara really felt abandoned, that was so connected to that collective mentality. And in Midvale, in the flashbacks, Kara is so much trying to go out and be a superhero immediately right now. Mm -hmm. And she did the same thing in the season one flashback that we saw, too. Yes, exactly. Because she has this idea. Well, because, you know, the last thing her mother said to her was that she's going to be a hero. She's going to protect people. And it's like, how is she going to honor the memory of her family if she doesn't do it? Mm -hmm. However, in Kara's point of view, nobody seems to want to let her do that. She even says that to, well, technically Jean, in the in the one flashback scene with the FBI agent who's there. She's like, you know, I have these powers. No one will let me use them. Mm -hmm. And it's something so important to her, and it's giving her such distress. But Eliza kind of forces Kara to... Well, I don't know that she forces her. She encourages her. (laughs) Yeah, well, because it's not forcing. In that scene in the flashback where the girls are having breakfast and Kara's just being a pain in the butt because she's 15 years old and 
she thinks she knows how she wants to live her life, as many 15-year-olds do. She's like, I don't need school. I'm bulletproof. I can just go do what I want. And Eliza's like, no, you literally need to be educated. Like, go get your stuff and get on the bus. <laughs> and Kara mm-hmm. doesn't have to listen. Kara has all of these powers, and she is not related to these people. There is nothing keeping her there except the emotional connection that she feels to them. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing requiring her to give Eliza that respect to treat her like a mother figure. But she still does. And that's such an important part of understanding how those relationships work. There's, like, you know, I get questions all the time about, do they really have, like, a real parental relationship? Because Kara doesn't call her mom. Of course they do. They absolutely do. Kara doesn't call her mom because Kara remembers her mother and her mother, it turns out, is still alive. That does not mean Eliza raised her any less. Mm -hmm. And I like that the show gives you that and it doesn't pound you over the head with it, but the context is there. Yeah. And she reacts the same way to like Alex in that episode. There's that tension within the whole family, but still the reason that she becomes Cara Danvers is those connections Mm -hmm. and to protect that. Well, and the other thing that's fun with that little exchange uh, with the teenage versions of the Danvers sisters, with uh, Eliza telling Kara that she really needs to go to school, is that if you stop and look at it in a bigger context and look at who Kara is now as an adult and the fact that she works in journalism, you know, she's in the communications industry, she has to know people. She has to know how people work. She has to know how systems of society work. Like even, and to be a superhero, she to some extent needs to know those things that she, so she can make decisions about who to prioritize, who to save, how to do it, when to network with like the fire department or whatever else. And if someone had not told her that that mattered enough, we would have a very different Kara with superpowers. Mm -hmm. And I have a feeling we're going to learn about that in much more detail this year. Perhaps, yes. (laughs) But that's also the arc that that was season three, which was... Mm -hmm. Kara losing that connection, that grounding to Earth, and then it resulting in a failure of her ideals, which we saw in the finale when she went along with, uh, conveniently, Alora, yeah, and went in to the fight with Rain with the idea that she was going to kill her, even though it went against her ideals. And then that backfired terribly. <laughs> yes. And it really solidifies the idea that Kara needed Eliza to be the superhero that she is. Because as evidenced with all of Alora's failures of ideals. Well, it's kind of in the sense like you can't necessarily display a ton of compassion all the time as a judge because then you're easy to manipulate, you're easy to buy. But if you're constantly objective and you're always looking at facts and you're making decisions like, well, this is the best outcome based on these odds... That's still not giving the right weight to all of the consequences of your actions. If you lose that connection, you make bad decisions. Well, the other thing that distinguishes Kara is because she ended up with these superpowers from her early adolescence onward, she understands that there are ramifications to her actions in a way that she maybe would not have otherwise on Krypton. Because just the smallest thing, you know, she hugs somebody too hard. She gets angry while she's holding her phone. Um, 
just little things. She can accidentally cause so much damage or, you know, do things that affect other people in very negative ways. And so I think in that sense, she is going to think of consequences and think about, you know, being compassionate and making choices that are good for people around her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, losing an entire planet because of the failures of its people will also sort of instill that weight of consequence in your decisions. It's very true. So that grounding in the people around you and, and the consequences makes Kara a better hero. And that stems from Eliza attempting to give Kara as normal childhood as possible. And what's interesting is that Eliza had the same parenting objective for Kara and Alex, but she went about it in very different ways. Her parenting style differed. It did. Like I said, with Cora, she tried to give her a normal childhood to sort of work against that trauma. Meanwhile, with Alex, she attempted to help her achieve her full potential. Yes. And sometimes she pushed a little too hard Mm -hmm. in her expectations, which uh, set up a pattern of miscommunication between the two of them that really comes to a head in that Livewire episode, which is 105. And their relationship is so tense in that episode for until you get to that moment where they finally sit down and talk to each other. But you had said something really interesting, which is that you can really pinpoint this episode as the start of Alex's series-long emotional journey that she's currently still on relating to her identity, to understanding her own strengths as a person, to her figuring out how to make herself happy. All of that really kicks off with that one moment of her talking to her mom on the couch in Kara's apartment. Mm -hmm. And when you said that, I was like, I mean, I kind of already knew that, but like, I was like, oh, cool. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because the episodes prior are very much about Alex just struggling to support Kara and and help her make the best decisions. And then we find out the relevancy to Alex's own emotional journey in that episode. Yeah, and it's interesting. So the biggest takeaway I got from that episode was that Alex and Eliza are actually quite close for the most part. And that comes across when we finally meet her in person. Like prior to this, you've had Alex being like, oh, mom's going to be so mad that you became a superhero and it's going to be my fault. Oh my God, mom is going to give me crap about this. But then, you know, Eliza gets there and Alex is already bracing herself for tension. But when Eliza's talking to Wynn, she's talking about, oh, Alex, you know, she studies the same thing I do. She's clearly proud of her. She's clearly like, she likes the fact that they like the same things. They behave very similarly. We see in a later episode... They even think in very similar patterns some of the time, and it's really funny when you see it. But how does that fit with kind of how Alex has been interpreting that relationship? Because obviously, you know, they there is a lot of tension there. Well, what sort of what sort of a basis do you have for that assessment of their relationship? Well, so one of the things you have to keep in mind with Alex as far as her her interpersonal relationships are concerned at that point in season one is like her relationships are tense with everybody at that point. It's not just Eliza. Like, Eliza's part of the problem. And once Alex and her mom kind of clear the air, the tension in Alex's relationship with Kara starts to go away. The tension in her relationship with Jean starts to go away. So they're all interconnected, and some of it has to do with the way Alex is perceiving herself, and some of it's 
it's a little bit mistaken. And then once she finds that out, she kind of calms down a little bit. But so, you know, they they got into a pretty big argument in the, in the middle of Thanksgiving where poor Wynn is just awkwardly sitting there <laughs> about, you know, Alex taking her job at the DEO and she's kind of snaps at Eliza that, you know, I was doing that because you always told me to look out for Kara and Eliza freaks out understandably, because she knows that the DEO was responsible for the death of her husband, but Alex doesn't know that. Um, mm-hmm. So her reaction is is angry, but it's like an angry out of fear. And I've done that before as a parent. Um, <laughs> it backfires. <laughs> it definitely backfires, just like it did in that episode. But the thing is, you have to do what Eliza does when Alex comes back to the apartment, which is apologize, mean it, and then explain. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I say you can tell that despite all that tension, Alex is very close to her mom is that once Eliza does apologize and like shows that she's willing to let Alex talk, Alex isn't afraid to talk. She's totally honest. And she finally kind of unburdens herself of all these things that have been bothering her for like a decade. Mm -hmm. And just that to me is indicative of the fact that she's comfortable doing that, which means that it's something that she'd been doing a lot throughout her life and that this is her feeling comfortable. Like she, she just seemed totally okay. Like even though she was crying. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like a, like a release as opposed to as something that she's unfamiliar with. This is back to normal in a way. Exactly. And it's it's a big contrast to kind of like we'll talk about later uh, Lena's relationship with Lillian. You know, when Lillian says she wants to remake contact and like make their relationship closer, Lena's like, okay, whatever. Wouldn't even know where to begin with that. Yeah. But, she, you know, she doesn't trust it because that's so unfamiliar to her. But like this is the total opposite of that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that indicates that Alex usually got along with Eliza was that in the Midvale flashback, Alex flat out says to Kara, you know, before we adopted you, my parents were great. My mom wasn't constantly giving me a hard time like this. Everything was fine. And so one of the big issues that Alex has that she's never really voiced to either her mom or to Kara is that I think because she was older when Kara came to live with them, her parents just kind of assumed that because she could logically understand like, oh, we have adopted a new child who's going to need attention and help and whatever, that Alex would get that because Alex was 14, almost 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And like, yes, she did logically understand that. However, it's still going to hurt her feelings to feel like she's getting less attention or she's getting less positive attention. And then she also is seeing, you know, especially after her dad dies, her mom is increasingly stressed out. Her mom's the only one getting enough money to send them to college, et cetera, et cetera. And that starts her kind of on that spiral of, I'm not going to tell my mom that I'm doing bad at calculus. I'm not going to talk about how I feel because that'll just add to all the problems. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that we, when we flash back to Midvale, we see the sort of beginnings of that secrecy of the ways in which she's struggling. Yeah, and it's actually really interesting because there was a an article that came out in the Washington Post almost two years ago now that summarized a bunch of research from a documentary on siblings of kids with special needs. And you can definitely look at Kara as a child who fits that profile because Kara has so many super senses that she 
she essentially has a similar profile to someone with a sensory processing problem. She has super needs. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, she, she needed so much extra attention, so much extra care just to get even basic physical things kind of under control. And siblings who don't have those problems in a family like that tend to exhibit many of the same personality characteristics and many of the same emotional issues that we see with Alex. Like the fact that she mentions feeling like she needs to be perfect all the time. The fact that she kind of presses down her own negative emotions about her other members of her family because she doesn't feel like she can talk to anybody who gets it. Minimizing her own problems because she knows that there are way bigger problems to worry about. And then also being relied upon to help out around the house and be more mature maybe than another kid her own age. And for the most part, and where the communication failure occurs, is that Alex attempts to rise to those expectations. Mm -hmm. And this is also at a time when there's this big family secret. Mm -hmm. And she also has no one to talk about that to. Yes, exactly. And she's trying to take on all these added expectations because throughout her life, anytime she's tried to do something, she's always had the moral support to back her up. But all of a sudden, she's being asked to do way, way more things and they're challenging and she's not succeeding at them. And then so she's getting negative feedback in the sense of being, you know, told, oh, you didn't do this right. But she's interpreting that as like, total failure. Mm -hmm. But she's also not saying that like, hey, some of this is too hard for me. Yeah. And then because she continues to, to mostly meet those expectations, Eliza never realizes that like, oh, they're too much and I can back, I should back off. Or some of it manifests itself as just typical adolescent, like, ugh, I don't want to babysit, leave me alone. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. So all of that is in there in the background of this one conversation that they have at Livewire. But the cool thing is, once they finally have that big conversation, their relationship hits a much more even keel and they are getting along way better after that. Um, and you see it at the end of season one when Alex shows up at Eliza's house with Jean in baby form. <laughs> and she's so relieved to see Eliza and her mother just kind of like looks at her in her disguise with her child in hand and is just like, okay. <laughs> and kind of <laughs> rolls with it. Um, but not even that. She also, and this is a part where you can see how alike they are. She does not hesitate when Jean comes to get her to bring her into the middle of that battle in the finale. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Kara's, you know, almost down for the count with superpowers, and Eliza's like, sure, I'll give it a try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is 100% something Alex would do. So that's kind of fun. And then you kind of see little, little hints further on as we go into season two and season three. We get to see them kind of Medusa is specifically, we get to see them do science together. And Alex gets so excited that her mom's the one who solves the, the problem with the virus and she also cures Jean. But then also the other kind of cool thing is that you've had this, the tension in the whole episode of, of Alex wanting to come out to her mom, but being afraid. And mm -hmm. Alex initially thinking she was going to do that in public in front of all of Kara's friends, which <laughs> clearly she wasn't up for because she got wasted. In nope. the process. <laughs> Her yearly um, confession. But what's neat is that Eliza obviously already knows something is up because when they finally start talking, she specifically says, like, you know, you've been mentioning this girl a lot. Like, does this have anything to do with the conversation we're going to have? And Alex is like, how do you do that? <laughs> but the cool part about it is that, you know, Eliza waits to bring it up until they're in 
a space where Alex is comfortable. Like, they're in her lab and they're alone. Yeah. Which is such a nice nod to how well you do learn to understand your kids. And Eliza understands both of the girls very well. She does. And we see it again in the episode with the wedding shower where Alex is freaking out because her mom went overboard with, like, all these decorations and all the party games and whatever. But the moment Mm -hmm. that Alex is genuinely uncomfortable, Eliza, with such practiced ease, this made me laugh so much, takes one look at Alex's face and is like, okay, let's open presents. Like, you know, when your toddler is getting impatient at a party and you need to distract them. (laughs) um, And it was just like, that's so funny because these actors don't necessarily know each other that well, but like (laughs) just the smooth practice, like, oh, you've reached your limit. We're going to move on. (laughs) It's fine. And she does the same thing again in Midvale because Eliza kind of cautions Kara that she's like pushing too hard with Alex being so upset. And she's totally right about it. Eliza flat out says, like, look, Alex is going to want to do this. She's going to want to do this. And you're going to want to leave her alone until she's done. Um, (laughs) Yes. And by the end of the episode, Alex is like, I needed this. And this was the right decision. So it's, it's, the right decision was really um, immediately taking Alex to Eliza. Right? I just love that that was Kara's immediate reaction was like, mm-hmm. Alex is hurting. We need mom. Like, <laughs> but it's kind of fun because then that kind of cycles back to where you have Marin give Alex that wonderful compliment about how she would have made a good green Martian because she's so in tune with other people's emotions. Mm-hmm. And this is clearly where she gets it from. Yeah, where both Alex and Kara get it from, really. Yeah, they're both very good at it. And clearly they've had a lot of practice learning it and seeing it in action. And it's cool, too, because that ties back into kind of going forward, looking at where Alex's story starts to turn in season three. And she starts kind of seeking out those things that will make her happy the way that she's been slowly encouraged Mm -hmm. to do. Is that it's very much a part of her her reasons why she wants to be a parent someday and like why wouldn't it be her mom is a fantastic role model like (laughs) in case you couldn't tell i love eliza (laughs) (laughs) and clearly alex does too and clearly alex does too and so does (laughs) Kara. i still i will be really sad if we don't get both of Kara's moms at thanksgiving like (laughs) awkwardly talking to each other and trading tips I will also accept some of those phone calls to Eliza that we know are happening. Right. You're keeping them from us. <laughs> I know we're going to see Alex calling Jean a lot, but I would love like one like or an occasional text or whatever that's like, mommy. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing with the parent decision, like you have Alex explicitly tell Kara that the relationship with Eliza is so wrapped up in all of the goals that Alex now has for herself. But it's also there very subtly in how Alex is clearly considering adoption Mm -hmm. on the one hand like yes she would be considering adoption because she'd be in a same-sex partnership but like even as a single parent the fact that she's thinking about that is is really touching just because you know that she's recognized that that decision that her family made was one of the things that so profoundly shaped her life and she's recognizing all of the strengths and all of the good things she got out of it and seeing like, I want to do that myself for someone else and really just kind of building on this set of values that she's inherited and kind of passing it forward. Yeah. 
clearly she looks upon her childhood and her relationship with her mother and her sister very fondly because she wants to encompass parts of that experience and pass it on to a child of her own. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other important part too is she knows they'll still be there to support her through that. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, you get kind of coming back to Kara's values, that stronger together emphasis there. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you say that because it's there's an attempt at stronger together for both Alora and Eliza. It's just the emphasis is placed in different aspects. Yeah, it's either it's inward versus outward. Mm-hmm. Personal relationships and being stronger together and uniting with the people around you versus branching outward and, and trying to be connected to everything and be everything for everyone. Yes. So now that we have talked about our uh, shining example of focusing (laughs) on the individual happiness or satisfaction, which in Eliza's case is she's definitely very focused on the happiness and the satisfaction of her children, we're going to switch over to what you've described as the foil to the Danvers family. Yes. Which is the Luther family, Mm -hmm. understandably for a, a super story. That's true. I think they're a foil because, well, not only are there the obvious contrasts in relationships within the family and family dynamics, but there's also they're like bizarro versions of each other because we have a parent, the mother, who's the most prevalent figure in the family. It's kind of like two matriarchies. 2.5, kind of. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) 2.5. We have the mother figure, and then we have the sort of less prevalent father figure, and then we have two siblings, and one of them is adopted. And so Lena and Cara are kind of foil examples of adoption to each other. And while Eliza's parenting objective is individual happiness for the child, Lillian's is individual happiness for herself for the parent. And I have some theories about why Lillian's brain works the way it does. You do. And my inner psychology nerd is very excited for you to describe this. I think that Lillian exhibits the traits of someone with narcissistic personality disorder. Mm -hmm. People who have this disorder are very focused on their ego and and image and everything funnels back into that and is important as it pertains to that. It's a You'll probably find a lot of think pieces about it in the news if you choose to Google. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) You could argue that she's a psychopath because she's so um, violent and... um, Anti-social in the psychological sense of the word. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But uh, she also seemed to have some guilt (laughs) concerning Lena and her relationship, but it was only after she decided that Lena was important in her life. But either way, a psychopath is also a narcissist. So the traits that I talk about pertaining to narcissism will also apply to Lillian if she is a psychopath. But a malignant narcissist can also have those criminalistic tendencies that a psychopath has. So, Hmm. And they'll feel guilty about things that affect people with in their inner circle. So like Lena or Lex, mm. but not so much people who are outside of that. So like if she does something terrible to somebody who isn't personally important to her, she doesn't care so much. So her metallo test subjects. Yes. Or all aliens, maybe. <laughs> and, and some of the traits that she exhibits, she's very focused on her image. We don't see her like putting on makeup and that sort of like well, no, but she is always very put together. Like she, yes. she looks like what you'd expect for like the wife who's like the top of a, a very wealthy family. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that she's very poised. Yeah. But she's also focused on the Luther legacy. 
And once she decides that Lena is somewhat like an interesting figure and, and somebody that can carry on her name, when she decides to embrace her as a Luther, then she becomes really bothered by the fact that Lena is not active with L Corp, mm. which was previously Luther Corp. She's bothered that she's not being a Luther and she's off doing catco things. Whereas we know that she maybe didn't care so much when Lena was off working in her tech startup before the show took place. She didn't seem to care about L Corp even a few months before attempting to reconnect with Lena. Because Kara asked Lena if Lily was proud of her for what she did. And she's mentioned that she didn't care about L Corp at all. Well, but at that point, L Corp was still sort of phasing out Luther Corp products and services. And they were still, for example, producing their uh, alien scanner. Yes. So uh, <laughs> maybe because Lena was still basically towing the company line, but not doing anything that was of specific personal relevance to Lillian. Mm -hmm. That's true. And uh, some other traits are just that she's charming. Yes, she certainly is. She's personable. You know, if you didn't know she was a terrible person, you could probably sit down and have a conversation with her and feel like it was meaningful or productive in some way. Yeah, she'd probably be someone almost fun to be around. But then obviously you get into all the things that she's actually talking about when we see her and it's less palatable. Yes. And some other narcissistic traits are that she's hypercritical, which relates directly to her relationship with Lena. Lena says, but the truth is, as a daughter, I always seemed to fall short. And then when Lillian's lawyers were calling Lena in the episode where she was imprisoned, Lena said that she was probably calling to tell her that her outfit in court was horrible and that she needs a makeover. <laughs> right. Because that's what matters when you're a Luther. <laughs> yes. Which, again, is a very sort of superficial image related criticism. It's something she would be worried about concerning. Lena because she's reflective of the family. And on television. And on television, yes. I have a couple quotes here that seem to describe Lillian well, which describe a narcissist. They believe they are superior and can only associate with equally special people. And they look down on people they perceive as inferior. Mm -hmm. Which we obviously know that Lillian is an extreme xenophobe. I also thought it was interesting that when she was talking to Supergirl at the end of season two, Supergirl and her are temporarily on the same team because they're trying to rescue Lena. And Supergirl easily, I think, knocks out somebody, yeah. knocks out a Daxamite. And Lillian's impressed with her. And then she says, it's a shame that your politics are so intractable. You're very useful. And it's like she goes back on her disdain as soon as someone who's on her side is impressive and might look good next to her. Yep. But it's also interesting that she specifically uses the word useful. Exactly. She's not actually appreciative of anything about Kara. It's just, oh, you could do a thing that I might need you to do. Cool. Which is how, in a way, she sees all the people around her, even the people that you might think she's close to or wants to be close to. Then another thing I thought was interesting in terms of her xenophobia is the way that she frames it is that she's trying to protect humanity. Mm -hmm. And there's a type of narcissist who has collective good seeming goals, but it's actually about the individual. So what you're saying is on the surface, they make it look like they care about doing good maybe for other people or just for the benefit of society, but they're actually acting out of a need to achieve something for their own sense of self. Yeah, their own self-image because they look really good when you're a hero. 
everybody admires you. Exactly. And then when a situation arises where somebody who actually cares about the good of all would be upset, Lillian is excited and she she's gloating. Toward the end of season two, when the Daxamites are invading, she walks into the alien bar, saunters in. Which is already offensive. Exactly. And she says, the alien invaders have come to destroy our way of life and claim our planet, just as I said they would. And I think it was Wynne who said, you can just say I told you so. And she says, I did tell you so. And now you can shoot me or we can work together. Right. And it's it's so staged. She knows they're not going to shoot her, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> like this should be her worst fear as somebody who like take General Lane from season one. Mm. He talks about having nightmares about the day the Earth stood still and the alien invasion in that mm. and admits his fear. This isn't so much about fear as it is her just being able to play a role. Yeah, that's true. She's not there to help them because she cares about either them or the fate of the rest of society. She really only cares about what she can gain from this chaos by being like, I was right and I was here for the people in their time of need and that means they're going to want me to do things for them later. Mm -hmm. And with Lena, she sees it as an opportunity to be like, oh, I was right all this time. Now you should want to ignite a relationship again with me. Right. And she's really shocked when Lena's like, no, uh, <laughs> I don't I think so. Still don't <laughs> have your same views. Which then takes us to how this all affects Lena. And we kind of have to set the stage of what her childhood would have looked like. And in dysfunctional family dynamics, which is like looking at the how how families that are sort of broken in various ways, how they work or, or don't work. Mm -hmm. There are these six roles, but there are only two that are really significant because, well, Lillian has two children. But also these are the two roles that are important when you talk about any narcissistic parent. Mm -hmm. There's the golden child, which is the child of a narcissistic parent who the parent will focus all of their positive attention on mm -hmm. and exaggerate all of their achievements and talk about how good they are. And, and Lillian, when we see her in all of her Cadmus glory, describes Lex, who is the golden child. She says, my darling boy, my genius son, an actual Superman behind bars for life. And she puts him on this pedestal. And the reason that she does this is that she gets what you call narcissistic supply, which is if your child achieves something, it looks good for you. Mm -hmm. And you kind of project yourself onto that child. So when that child succeeds in one way or another, you feel good the same way that you would if you succeeded. That's not a positive thing either, because the narcissistic parent will be very controlling and need that child to reflect all of the narcissist's personal wants and, and their goals. But then on the other side is the scapegoat which is the child who can do no right, which is Lena. But what's interesting about Lena's role as a scapegoat is that when Lex is sent off to prison and Lillian can no longer get that narcissistic supply from him, she shifts over to Lena and tries to shape her into the golden child. And this is what we see in the middle of season two when Lillian tries to reignite a relationship and tells her that she was secretly, biologically a Luther the whole time. 
a thing she just never felt the need to share with her. I think she didn't want to share with her because she was the scapegoat and she was the one who wasn't a part of the family and that she could vent all her frustrations on. Well, that's an interesting way to read it because I know a lot of people take it as Lena was the product of an affair. So obviously Lillian would have resented her. Well, that puts her in an easy position to be the scapegoat. And what this translates to in a relationship is abuse and neglect, Mm -hmm. emotional abuse and neglect. And that has a certain kind of impact on a child. And with Lena, it translates to a need to prove that she's good because she has this deep sense that she's bad because of the negativity that she received and the fact that when she did try to achieve something, it never quite measured up. But then it also trains her to still seek that external validation to judge whether or not she is good. Hmm. So kind of like her internal ability to calibrate whether she's good or a bad person is way off. Yeah, because I mean, if, when you're when you're trying to form that as a kid, um, and you make decisions that are good and you make decisions that are bad, and the whole time you're just getting your bad as yeah, a message, that's true. you're not really going to have a basis for for any of that. And then put on on top of that, after it sort of comes out the kind of people that Lex and Lillian are, mm-hmm. she then has this external weight upon her expectation that she's going to be evil. Mm-hmm. When she says, all my life, all I ever wanted to be was good. So that's very much her her storyline through the seasons is her trying to navigate morality and that being connected to her sense of worth. Yes. And then in season three, in 305, Damage, we have sort of a proof that that external validation is what calibrates her judge of her own goodness. When Edge puts the lead in the water and everyone in the city thinks that Lena did it. Mm -hmm. Well, not that she did it, but that it was a consequence of her decision to help get rid of the Daxamites. Yes. Well, that's the point is that it wouldn't have been an active choice on her part to hurt people. It would have been a mistake of some sort. And as James says, it might have very well been Lex's fault because it was his technology. But Lena sees all of this external judgment and she crashes emotionally. And that that feeling is what ends up, even though she's validated later on that it wasn't her, it's what sort of turns her anger outward to edge at the end of that episode when she attempts to kill him. But then after that, and somewhat through her relationship with Carr and somewhat through her relationship with James, she gets somewhat of a basis for judging her own goodness and standing by her own decisions. Because with the kryptonite situation with Sam and the tests on her and and trying to help her with Rain, when Supergirl finds out, Lena doesn't turn inward and say, oh, I'm, I'm a terrible person, it turns out. She stands by her decision. Mm-hmm. But she also turns Supergirl into like her enemy. Like it's sort of like, it's not me that was wrong. Therefore, it must be you who has done something terrible. Well, and it, she looks at it as very black and white because she's never really in the way she was raised, been allowed to see ambiguity, like either both people can be wrong, or both people can be kind of right. It was always like either you're totally wrong, or the extreme with Lex was like, you're the best at everything and can never do anything wrong. (laughs) That's true. Um, And that situation when she was growing up, has made her very emotionally immature and it affects her relationships now and something she has to grow past um, and kind of learn how to navigate conflict. Yeah, just a little. So that when somebody does something wrong against you, you don't then consider them at the same level as your abusive mother, 
which is something she said to Kara about Supergirl. Supergirl went behind my back and used my personal relationships against me. That's like something my mother would do. She crossed the line. I can never trust her again. Like, that's it. Yep. Lena is very all or nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's something that Kara recognizes. When she talks about why she can't tell Lena her secret, she says that she'll lump her in with everyone else in her life who's ever wronged her. She's not wrong. I mean, I I know I've gotten people asking like that the story always kind of comes back to Lena and her struggle with is she a Luther? Is she good? Is she bad? And I've gotten people asking, you know, is this constantly redundant? Is there progress? And I've definitely said, you know, considering the amount of emotional abuse that Lena has to get through, there has been incremental progress. She's definitely not to a point one would call emotionally healthy when it comes to kind of understanding how to interpret conflict in particular. But she has been getting better very gradually. It's just the question is, you know, will there be a setback that's like the tipping point from which she can't return, like one way or the other? It comes back to that idea of stronger together, that Lena very much has to find a family now in her adult life um, and surround herself with people who can help her to grow and to be more emotionally healthy. And that takes strength, emotional strength and trust and like a recognition that she needs to do it. Yeah. Which may make a fallout, a requirement for the storyline. Possibly. Yeah. Now that we've talked about our kind of our two extremes in terms of focusing on happiness for the child versus for the parent and kind of what that does when the mom's emphasis is either on their kids versus themselves and, and how that affects those children. We can kind of look briefly at the Arias family as a contrast of both of those things. As we learned with Sam's dynamic with her mother, that was focused maybe on Sam, but only to a point. And then it became about Patricia and her values and, and her concern for how she'd be judged as, as a mom, basically. Well, you might be able to see it sort of the other way around, which is that uh, Patricia mostly tried to focus on the happiness of the child, but repeatedly failed and then fell back on her own happiness. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. So we learn initially when Sam goes to see Patricia that their relationship is, is not great. They haven't spoken since Ruby was born. Patricia's never met Ruby. We know, obviously, Sam was adopted because she landed in a space pod. But we do find out then later when Kara goes there to see Patricia that this woman obviously did care enough about Sam that, you know, she took her in despite knowing that she crash landed in a spacecraft in the yard. And then, you know, she didn't really question the bizarre demon drawings on the wall and just kind of <laughs> like re-wallpapered over it and pretended it never happened. And like, you know, even when we see the set of Sam's bedroom, it, it's very normal. It's very, you know, this was a life of just like an average kid who had a pretty normal childhood and like had her boy band posters on the wall. And, and it's not that Patricia didn't love her, but it's you see in her discussions with Sam that the teen pregnancy thing was clearly a breaking point and they never got past it. They never had a real conversation about it until all those years later. Kind of like how Alex didn't kind of talk about some things with Eliza until years later, but they never made peace with each other. And they only really got any chance of, of seeking forgiveness and understanding when Patricia died, which is unfortunate. But then that also kind of connects to, you know, Kara's decision where Alora almost dies. So there were a lot of different mom stories kind of tangling together there. Mm -hmm. 
And it's not surprising that in season three, this family of mothers and daughters was prominent. Yeah. And then obviously you had the very big emphasis on Sam and then Ruby. And that was a very big contrast to how Sam perceived her mom as treating her. Like you get the sense that Sam is really trying to prove something by the way that she's raising Ruby. So Again, it's kind of almost like a blend of like, obviously her main concern is, is Ruby's safety, her security, her happiness, but she's also got this motivation of like wanting to prove that as like a single teen mom, she can make it work and get the job and have the kid who behaves well. And then when she finds out Ruby's, you know, punched the kid at school, she's like, oh my God, why mm-hmm. did you do this? You know, so she's a fantastic mom. They have pancake o'clock and nerf fights on Christmas. And Sam is also passing on that same idea of, you know, we are a team, we're a unit, we're stronger together too, in the same way that you see it in some of the other families that we talked about. But She's also worrying about how that's going to affect her career. And she has that little freak out to Lena. And Lena's like, trust me, I could tell you what a bad mother looks like. It's not you. Um, so to have them as that nice contrast and to kind of see another example of parenting when you still have the child as an unfinished product, if you will. Like when we see all of these adult women with their mothers, like they're already kind of fully formed as people. But like Ruby's not. So that was a nice contrast, and then obviously that also tied into kicking off kind of Alex's musing about what that would look like for herself. So it was a cool example because it it pulled different elements of those dynamics from all of the the other three kind of main mother-daughter relationships and put its own spin on it. Yes, and it's very fitting that this story is what kicks off the next page of Alex's story Mm. with becoming a mother in the future. And with with Sam and Ruby, we see some of the same conflicts that we saw with Sam and Patricia, which is that lying, how much you should reveal to the kid. And ultimately, at the, at the end of the storyline, it's that you should tell your kid as much as possible. And Well, be honest, but in an age-appropriate way. Yes. And, and that's something that Sam struggles with. But there's always that foundation that they can fall back on, that strong connection between them, even when there are struggles, that allows them to maintain their relationship. Something that Lena clearly doesn't have with Lillian, and something that Alex and Kara have with Eliza, and in some ways, Kara even has with Laura. There's this concept in psychology of good enough parenting, which is that even if there are mistakes that the parent makes, and even if the kid has issues that stem from that, they're still good enough. They're not abusive or neglectful. They try their best and they always have their... They have their child's best interests in mind. Yes. Well, and it's important to note that no parent is ever going to be perfect. Like, really good enough is what you can hope to achieve. Mm -hmm. Because no matter how well you think you know your kid, kid, no matter how close you are, how much you talk, you're still going to misinterpret things. You're still going to screw up and say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing and get mad at each other or hurt somebody's feelings. And like, it's okay as long as you acknowledge it and you move on and you try to be better. Mm-hmm. Like that's the really critical part of it. Like apologies mean nothing if there's no action to go with them, which is why you have the contrast that's so striking between Eliza apologizing to Alex versus Lillian pretending that she wants to make things up to Lena. Mm-hmm. 
Which is why she's at the bottom of the the list of moms. Uh, well, I don't know if I'd necessarily put her all the way at the bottom there. Well... Well, who would you say? Who would I put at the very bottom? Are we including, like, all of the moms in the show? Yes. All of them. All of them. I don't know. I thought Rhea's pretty low down there, too. I always say that Rhea's like Mother Gothel from Tangled. Mm-hmm. Well, with Rhea, it's like, I feel like maybe she... I don't know. Rhea's hard because we don't have a whole lot of characterization for her. We don't have a ton of context for her, but Rhea was, like, disturbingly possessive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's also, I wonder what her 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 parenting objective is. Because it might be the good of her kid, but it might be really warped what she thinks is good for them. That's very true. But I mean, you know, this is a woman who, when her son said he'd like changed his mind about how he wanted to live his life, murdered her husband and then started trying to invade another planet. So like, that's a really, that's a really extreme reaction to finding out that your kid would rather be like a bartender than a politician. Like, well, if, if it served Lillian, I am sure she's capable of, of something like that. a good point, which then makes it really interesting that Lena kind of gravitated toward Rhea the way that she did initially. <laughs> That's true. Has that same energy about her. Well, because she kind of played her in this in a very similar way. She did. And just because she was a stranger, Lena didn't see it. Mm-hmm. So, huh. Yeah, so I don't know. It's debatable. <laughs> Lillian and Rhea are down there at the bottom. That's for <laughs> yes. sure. I don't know. Let's see. Everybody, I don't, I feel like most of the rest of them are like kind of in the middle. There's like yeah. well, a there's sliding scale. Cat's mom is kind of. Cat's mom was a jerk. She's like a less psychopathic narcissist. <laughs> She's not yes. like criminal. That's a good way to put it. Where would you put the four like nice moms? The four nice moms? Well, on a sliding scale, where would, how would you fit like Cat versus Allura or like then Sam and Eliza? Eliza's best mom, so... (laughs) (laughs) So Eliza would be at the top. Especially because of the situations she had to deal with, with raising Kara and Alex after losing her husband. That's true. I mean, the fact that she's so chill most of the time is (laughs) truly amazing. Like, honestly, I'm like, I aspire to that level of zen. (laughs) She's all sweaters and coffee mugs and... Well, but it's just, you gotta... That woman has had to have seen, like, every weird thing imaginable. Mm -hmm. Like, she just doesn't even blink, yeah. She's like, oh, my, my daughter's like possessed by my other daughter's crazy uncle. <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> she's like, sure, I'll just talk to her. I know she's in there somewhere. It's like, how? How do you know that? <laughs> Tell us your magic powers, best mom, Eliza. That's a level of confidence in both yourself and your child that is impressive. This is why <laughs> she is higher on the scale than Alora, because she's better at hope. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> probably true, but harsh. So I'd say Eliza, then Sam. Well, Kat is a really good mother to Carter. She is. Kat definitely learned from her earlier mistakes. Yeah. So I'll put her third. Okay. Um, I guess, I guess Alora. Kat, and Kat did a pretty good job of, uh, supporting Kara through many of her early young adult that's true mistakes yes although she she has kind of an edge about her she does her methods are sometimes harsh 
But Kara got the lessons that she needed That's in the true. end. Kara loves those mother figures. Kara collects mother figures. It's amazing. She has at least four. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see. We'll see what happens in the future. I wonder if we'll get more mother figures for Kara in some form next season. Perhaps for Kara's Russian doppelganger. It would be so amazing if they had an alt version of like the Danvers family for, <laughs> for Russian Kara. Not necessarily like literally them, but like Kara just gravitates so much towards that energy. Like <laughs> Kara's raised by Mother Russia. <laughs> yeah, she maybe that's it. She doesn't have an actual mother, but her mother is Mother Russia. Which will probably have a collective exactly. <laughs> objective of parenting. A, a more collective philosophy mm-hmm. similar to Kryptonian values. Yes. So uh, we will definitely see how that affects this Kara. Blank slate Kara. Blank slate Kara. So given the context that we've had throughout the whole series of these kind of mother-daughter relationships and how much they impact both the characters and then their choices as far as those drive the plot and how much the, the moms themselves even sometimes drive the plot forward, it'll be interesting to see how that continues to develop as we go forward in season four because we're going to see Kara in kind of more of a mentoring role this season. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to have that contrast of Vukara as we know her with um Red Sun Kara, who we don't know exactly how the culture and the upbringing that she's going to get in Russia is going to shape the ideals that she kind of came in with. And I expect it's going to be very different than Vukara, who was deeply influenced by both Alora and then Eliza. So I'm looking forward to all of that. I hope we get to see at least one of Kara's mothers again. So we're excited to see how some of these themes continue to play out in season four. That said, we'll be back again in a couple of weeks to talk about super science. We're going to have a little bit of a different format for you next time. So hopefully we'll see you for episode five. Thanks for listening.